Hello, I'm Oliver Wong. And I'm Morgan Rhodes. You're listening to Heat Rocks. Every episode, we invite a guest to join us to talk about a heat rock, an album that burns with that eternal flame. And today, we are winding the clock back 45 years mm. to talk about Nina Simone's 1974 album, It Is Finished. So- Almost exactly 46 years ago, Nina Simone entered the Lincoln Center's Philharmonic Hall in late July of 73 to record a concert on behalf of her then-label RCA Victor Records. This was a tumultuous time in Simone's life as she was spending much of her time outside the U.S., away from both family and IRS problems, so getting her back to New York to tape the show was no small feat. RCA was hoping to recreate the magic of her well-received Black Gold album, another live concert taping from a few years prior. This new show went well, with Nina in top form as a performer, and a year later, RCA took those songs, plus a handful of studio recordings from 1971, and packaged them together as It Is Finished. The title may have an ominous reference to some of Jesus' last words on the cross, but they also unintentionally marked an informal end to a prolific run of albums that Simone had begun in the mid-1950s. After it is finished, she only ever recorded three more albums before her death in the mid-2000s. You're not likely to find this title on most lists of Simone's best albums. It was, then and now, a deep cut, perhaps more appealing to modern-day crate diggers than old-school jazz bows, but it's a vital part of Simone's catalog at a time where she was dabbling with everything from soul and funk influences to the impact of the black power movement to discussing her own demons in concert and on wax. Mm. Nina told us she's the Obey woman. She eats thunder, drinks rain, and ain't nothing she can't do. <laughs> you hear me? You hear me? Because I ain't playing. Never was. Just waiting for my time. Waiting for my time. Had to learn patience. Had to learn patience. It is finished was the album pick of our guest today, Frosty Mark McNeil. Our guest has been in the game for a minute, part of an elite class of DJs that have occupied the airwaves for 20 years. Dub Lab, his brainchild, is the place you tune in for choices. Avant-garde, eclectic, rootsy, experimental. And our guest runs the point, steering folks towards, quote, the growth of positive music, arts, and culture. Dub Lab is for the children. Web-based, LA-blessed, credible, and incredible. Tastemakers is a new term, but before it was coined, our guest was already that. Not just in the discovery of sounds, but in the discovery of voices and personalities to distribute the sounds on behalf of my beloved L.A. and beyond. He's a pioneer in the truest sense, pushing culture forward in the booth, in the streets, and on the screen. He's a real-life music historian. Some of the times I've been blessed to talk music with him, he's dropped so much history, so many factoids, so much music memory, that going forward, I'm just going to call him Frosty the In the Know Man. Frosty, <laughs> welcome to Heat Rocks. Wow. <laughs> All right. So, why this album? Nina Simone had 40, 40 albums? Uh, it's something immense. Crazy like that? Yeah. Why this one? And nine live albums. Why this one? 
Well, first off, I'm a fan of the show, so I was curious to to hear how this introduction would roll out. <laughs> and I'm also, I feel blessed to, to, I feel like I've been educated now and also a little uh, flattered and embarrassed, but happy to be here. Nina Simone, in general, is, you know, one of those kind of gateway artists. And I feel I'm a latecomer to music to the wider world of music. I grew up on pop music, radio, you know, AM Gold Kid. And mm-hmm. so I didn't have the experience until going to college when that door opened and I started getting flooded. But Nina was one of those floodgates that I opened mm. and realized that her own huge catalog, as you mentioned, was an entire world that you could spend so much time in one of these kind of fertile lands that that keeps giving Mm. in the midst of that landscape or maybe i should say towards the latter end of that landscape you have this moment where it's almost threadbare but beneath nina's threads is like golden light and darkness you Mm. know there's there's so much there so much energy you know, that is swirling around, you know, it's like the, one of these mysterious beauties of the universe that every time she opened her mouth, you, you didn't know whether it was, you know, some, uh, a growl or a, a whisper. And I think that this album is catching her at a moment. You look at the cover of the record yeah, and she looks weary, but she also looks like she's about to slap you in the face, you know? <laughs> sure. So it's sure. even in her weariness, she was, she was immensely powerful so for me, the greatest albums of all time are, are those kind of head scratchers, the ones that I can't fully grasp on first, second, third, fourth, fifth listen. What was your introduction to Nina? The thing that stopped me in the tracks, and I, I probably had heard her music and not known, Yeah. but um, I think Wild is the Wind mm-hmm. um, was the song that blew my mind. I don't know exactly when I came to know her or when I came to follow her. I Mm. remember thinking when Lauryn Hill dropped that, uh, and while you're Al Capone, I'll be Nina Simone defecating on the Mm -hmm. microphone. Mm -hmm. I thought, maybe I don't know enough about (laughs) Nina Simone, and I need to dig a little deeper. I was familiar with Young, Gifted, and Black, um, but not familiar with the wider catalog. Then I started uh, assisting, I think it was, J- I assisted Jason Bentley first at KCRW. And KCRW, all the DJs would all always play Sea Lion Woman. It was a remix that yeah. was happening in, it had to be 2005 or, it was on one of the. It was on the Verve remix. It was on the Verve remix. Album, yeah. And that thing was such fire. So 
so I think that was my Nina Simone baptism when I really thought, oh my God, this is a transcendent voice and I need to dig a little bit deeper. Mm. I do think, to your point, that Mm. this album is is a curator's album, is a tastemaker's album because it flies under the radar. And Nina Simone is also, for me, one of those artists who... I think people uh, used to sun each other. It's one of those like, oh, you don't know, you ain't heard. Um, It's a measurement for how deep your crates go. Mm. And so there is, as much as I love her, there's also a little bit of an intimidation factor because my knowledge of her isn't as wide as I think Mm. uh, it probably should be. To your point, there's just so much to her career. It's not like she was ever an artist in which you had this very clear, I think, through line as to what she was, how she sounded, what she was about. I mean, you can really chop up her career into a lot of different parts because she was such a mercurial performer and personality. Um, You know, for me, I always think about my intros to Nina really come in two parts because there is the, what you might describe, I suppose, as like the classic Nina Simone, the I love, you know, I loved you, Porgy uh, Nina Simone. Um, Sugar My Bowl. These, I think those are two of the first songs I was introduced to when I was, and this is probably going back to the 1990s when I was listening to a lot of jazz vocalists. So that includes Ella Fitzgerald and Billie Holiday. And Nina has just one of you know the most distinctive voices within that particular camp. And it wasn't until a little bit later, and I think it was probably, I probably discovered this album if it wasn't at the Groove Merchant in San Francisco, it would have been at some similar store. It would have been through some similar personality to cool Chris who runs the store there, which is like, oh, you need to hear funkier than a mosquito's tweeter. And I well, So he pulls the master tapes out from behind the counter, <laughs> which is the way he rolls. Right, right. Chris probably could do that. Um and I I never I never even knew that it was a Ike and Tina Turner cover song. We'll talk we can talk more about the original later. But it was one of those things where the Nina that I thought I knew from like I Loved You Porgy, I had a hard time reconciling with wow. Like she did this too. And then that was around the same time I probably discovered Sea Line Woman. And mm-hmm. and then a lot of her stuff from this particular late 60s, early 70s, RCA Victor years, where she's covering a lot of pop, soul, and, and funk songs. Well, maybe not. I mean, I guess this is one of the few examples of a straight up funk song, but she's doing a lot of, I think, interesting covers, which to that, the camp that belonged to the classic Nina probably dismisses a lot of the stuff. Mm-hmm from these years. But I think if you're like me, in which you're looking for stuff that you can play out, yeah. like this era of Nina was so, so amazing. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, if I can just draw attention to this real quick, you know, she does this cover from an album by the same name to love somebody. Um, mm-hmm. This is also another RCA Victor album. This one comes a few years earlier from 1969. And I think on paper, if you said Nina Simone covering the Bee Gees, most people would be like, huh? <laughs> but I think this is just one of her, her best tracks. Do each and every little thing. What good does it bring? You ain't got you. Ain't got you. And Frosty, something that you said, this song reminds me or touches on that, which is just Nina's capabilities as an interpreter of other people's songs. And I think like most jazz artists, you have to because you're you, you're raised to sing songbooks and you learn all the same songs that everyone else in jazz sings. But in terms of the way in which she interprets pop songs, I just think what she does and because of the distinctiveness of her voice and the inflections and in her delivery are always, it always feels so deliberate. Yep. It's, it's, we, we say this all the time, I know it's cliche, but the way in which an artist makes a song their own, yeah. like 
if Nina's touching a song, she is she's putting her mark on that, no question. Oh yeah, and she's she's not afraid to touch some big songs. Mm. Um, I'm glad that you gave not to to love somebody, which I was teetering back and forth. That's also one of my favorite Nina albums. Right. And if you have a chance, 1969 Harlem Cultural Festival, there's a film that was made and it was meant for broadcast TV and then it kind of got shelved mm-hmm. and it's out there in the world and it's Nina at a height performance, mm-hmm. dashiki cl- clad band. She's actually calling from stage for revolution. Hey, we're in the middle of a revolution because I see the face of things to come. She was on fire. And that album also has a Leonard Cohen cover, Suzanne, which also was the Fairport Convention, did a beautiful version of. She's covering people like Leonard Cohen. Yeah. But she also, she came out of Atlantic City, you know, a a cocktail bar, piano bar world, where I think that standards and covers were very much a big part of that world. Right, absolutely. People are having a martini, they're going to shout out, you're almost like a jukebox in a way. So she probably, I imagine, was playing a lot of covers and standards, but then her background as well as a, a classical pianist. You know, talk about cover songs. That kind of classical canon of music is covered over and over and over and over and sure. over again. So she, I think, came out of a world where her own personal uh, musicality was also coming through expressing existing forms, but she found her own way to do it. And I think that she was asserting her her voice within something that existed, which was a very powerful kind of self-determination and yeah. a move. You know, I'm behind the piano right now. I'm, I'm, I'm taking charge, yeah. even in a subliminal way, maybe. You know, I'm going to take charge. Something that you thought you knew, I'm going to flip it on its head. And that's one of the most uh, powerful things about what she does, I think. And gangster. because and gangster. I, and gangster <laughs> because I think part of... Um, the beauty of the covers is the decisions that she makes on mm. what to cover. Mm. That if you decide to cover something like Mr. Bojangles yeah. and your Nina Simone on this album, it's like you got to have a good, you got to know that you're going to kill it. Yeah. Or you're just going to make it so different that people are going to be like, oh, I don't even remember the other Mr. Bojangles. And mm. I thought it was an odd choice, but I also thought that was so gangster yeah. that Nina was like, okay, I'm just doing Mr. Bojangles. And if we could hear, because mm. it doesn't sound like any other. No. Mr. Bojangles, Mr. Bojangles, dance. There's something haunting um, about her voice in this. There's there's a little bit of sadness that is, to me, so loaded um, that I'm like, what does Mr. Bojangles represent to her? What is the song about? for her mm-hmm. and there was a, even though this is a live album and I think there's a lot of intimacy to it there were so many moments on here where I just felt sad and maybe mm-hmm. we could get into what was going on in her her life then but there's a heaviness that covers a lot of tracks mm-hmm. and I've seen Mr. Bojangles people dancing and even though there's a little bit of touch of sadness in other versions this one was so heavy mm-hmm. that I was like well damn Nina but that was Miss Simone yeah that that particular song, Mr. Bojangles, is actually also coming after that super, super, super fire tune, funkier than a mosquito's tweeter. <laughs> yeah. And so in a way, it's almost like the comic relief, you know, that, that balances that out. Sad comedy, dark comedy. Yeah. But 
it's it's after that just mind drilling fire. Yeah. And I think it's worth noting. I mean, Funkier Than Mosquitoes Tweeter was one, as I mentioned during my intro, it's one of three songs that actually was not recorded live at, exactly. at this uh, Lincoln Center performance. Mm-hmm even though they do pipe in the audience noise, which a lot of labels did. Yeah. So you you think the entire set was actually recorded there where, in fact, those weren't. So if you actually take out the 1971 songs mm. that um, that ended up on this album and you just focus on the songs that were recorded at the Lincoln Center in 73, that sort of the sadness, the weightiness of it becomes yeah. even more so because you yeah. don't have a song yeah. like Funkier to kind of break up the, yeah. the, the, the feel of it. You know, I'm really glad, Morgan, that you brought up this tune in particular because it's not, it's certainly not necessarily my favorite song off this album, but it is, it is also one of the most haunting ones. Yeah. A lot of it mm-hmm. is in the performance. There's a point, I think, when she's singing the hook, it's, I think, maybe the second or third time she does it where her voice breaks because she's going, mm. just barely kind of breathing it out, right? And she can't get that full performance behind it, but you can hear the voice break in that moment. And to me, the song, and I don't really, you know, I don't know a lot about Mr. Bojangles in terms of the background of the song, but it's, it's, a song about the price that performers pay for yeah. being performers. And as prolific as she was in terms of as a studio musician, I mean, this is someone who was a consummate, consummate performer in terms of live shows. I mean, you mentioned before she did, what, nine, nine live, live albums, albums, which doesn't include all the other performances that she would have been giving you know, over the course of her lifetime. And Morgan, you were asking earlier in terms of what was going on for her. So... This, is, this was actually the first album that she recorded um, for RCA in about three years or so. So she had taken this, uh, what for her was a large hiatus because she was putting out two albums a year prior to this. She's spending a lot of time in Barbados. Initially, it was just to kind of get away from the U.S., get away from probably Nixon, mm-hmm. um, get away from a very yeah. abusive husband. Yeah. Then later, it was to get away from the IRS because she owed back taxes. Um, you know, it was also, I think... Right before she goes to Liberia and temporarily moves there and then abandons her daughter there. I mean, there's a lot of shit going on for her all in this time. And I think what Mr. Bojangles, to me at least, captures is just that wariness Mm -hmm. of someone who's been living on the road in literal and figurative ways. And is trying to escape herself and trying to escape everything else. She's she's frayed at the edges. Yes. And it's... You know, she famously, her her husband and manager, Andy Stroud, was very abusive yeah. to her, but also one of her greatest champions. It's one of these things. I mean, we're, we've got Ike and Tina Turner covered right. in yeah. the set here, mm-hmm. and it's this sort of duality. But Andy Stroud, who was, the, he made her dream of playing at Carnegie Hall come true. She wanted to do it. It wasn't happening. Nobody believed in her. He took his pension from the New York City Police Department and he paid for that concert to happen. And he was managing her and also kind of controlling, keeping some of the demons at bay. Yeah. She, her alcoholism spiraled out of control. You know, she was having a harder time after that, but she also was free of him. So it's again this kind of duality. And I think with this record, you're seeing and feeling the duality that was within her. And it's coming to the forefront in this music. And in a live setting, yeah. it's raw. It's there. It's very different than the studio recorded pieces. Yeah. Um, but this was her world at the point, too, as she was doing cover songs and she was playing shows. And there's this uh, this uh, quote that she gave that I always love about the live experience. Her goal was to shake people up so bad that when they leave a nightclub where I performed, I just want them to be in pieces. Mm. 
And she does it. Even on record, you're in pieces. You hear a song like Mr. Bojangles, and afterwards you're all jangly and jingly and falling apart. But she was also falling apart in a way and, and kind of at this crux. He spoke of years, of 15 years of how his dog and he traveled down across the south a bit. His dog up and died. So her cover of uh, Kumba Here, which comes from mm-hmm. Kumbaya, one of my favorite songs on here, but obviously, you know, as, as, as well documented, I'm churchy, and so anything that steers towards religion, yeah. uh, um, I love. But I wanted to um, sort of talk about the evolution of that song mm-hmm. by, by playing the earliest recording of Kumbaya. Kumbaya, Kumbaya. Later on, after Nina Simone records this, the song became famous as Come By Here, Good Lord, by uh, credited as one of the godfathers of, of modern gospel music, which is Walter Hawkins, and he recorded it on Love Alive. And why I picked those two versions to play is because I think that Nina Simone's is somewhere between the earliest recording and Love Alive. It falls somewhere square in the middle. It's mm. not overly churchy, and it's not overly diasporic either. It's just somewhere in somewhere in the middle. It's, she's covered religious songs before. I mean, one of my favorites is Sinner Man. So she's not new to this, but it's just when you think about the choices on this album, to put this smack dab in the middle, you're like, okay, so here we go. Mm. We got... The songs are as disparate as Mr. Bojangles and Come By Here, but one of my favorite tracks on the album. Come by here, good Lord, come by here, oh Lord, please come by here. You know, it's interesting because when you start to kind of follow these like tendrils as well, you know, Nina Simone is from North Carolina, mm-hmm. and this is relatively close to the Gullah Geechee kind of region. Yeah. And you've got the Sea Islands, and, yeah. and the, the Gullah language is this uh, Sea Island Creole dialect. And it's also closest to the Bahamanian Creole. And then we're connecting to Exuma, who's yeah. a big part of this album. But this is something that was floating in the air. I mean, this is... Uh, an African-American spiritual, very self-made. It's a song that also has a lot of layers, some some unknown history and some known history, and that the early cylinder, wax cylinder recording you played is one of, it's the earliest recorded version. But this is something that was floating, they think, through missionaries who picked it up from yeah. African, African-American spirituals in the U.S., floated to Africa, yeah. and then floated back to the New York folk scene, etc., so there's all of these layers of musical history. And I think, again, cover songs are also like these breadcrumbs that if you're putting a cover song out there in the world, like Nina, 
She also might be saying, like, here's a breadcrumb you should follow because there's something interesting at the other end of it. And in her case, you know, Exuma is an interesting character that when I first came across, it is finished, knew nothing about. But then I was also hearing in record nerd kind of, you know, circles and found them in kind of totally different universes, but then realized those universes are connected and so she's giving a nod that is, is if you follow the nod far enough, you're, you're going to find something interesting on the other end. Absolutely. Really glad you, that you brought that up because Exuma I, plays a huge role on a couple of these key songs, like Obey Woman comes, I believe, through Exuma, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, Dimbala. And uh, what's notable, too, is that on the, I guess, the the kind of streaming version of this album, there are three bonus songs. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are Nina, Zungo, uh, and uh, and I'm hopefully I'm pronouncing this vaguely right, uh, Fendaway. Oh, that one's beautiful. Um, none of which I believe were recorded anywhere around this particular album, but I think that whoever compiled those bonus tracks put them on, largely because those three songs sound very consistent in terms of instrumentation and sound sure. to a lot of the Exuma stuff on here, especially, um, actually all three of those songs uh, work in and out of that mm-hmm. that particular kind of her interest in the sounds of the Caribbean. It's a little mysterious, some of the origins of these things, but I, I think there was a concert that Babatunde Olatunji gave yeah. in New York that mm. um, some of those songs were recorded at because Zungo's one of his songs. Okay. And I can't tell, Exuma gets shouted out, are you here, Exuma, in one of the tunes? But you don't know if he's actually there or right, not, right. or if his, his spirit is some, yeah. somehow floating around. But I think it was, she appeared as a guest of Babatunde uh, Olatunji. Mm-hmm. And so I think those recorded then. This record, again, is pieced together. And I think it might even be a couple live dates plus the studio dates. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is also one of these things, as as a music fan, you start to seek out the the hints the album cover doesn't give... Yeah, the liners hints. are not really useful for that reason. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. if you want to discover Exuma, you're not going to do right. it through the liner notes because there's no credits right. here on the on the record for, for the songwriters. But, you know, he's... Talk about gateways again. This is a gateway, and, and we're connecting back to to the Bahamas and the Caribbean mm-hmm. culture sure. and, and someone who came from that world and, like her, kind of move from the Bahamas, Tony McKay, and he kind of reinvented himself in New York and was bringing a lot of that kind of Caribbean, the Junkano, and all these different kind of uh, uh, sounds to that Greenwich Village scene, finding, you know, some some like-minded Richie Havens and different people Mm -hmm. that he was playing with, but... He was throwing spells on records, you know, it was like Incantation City. And I don't know how they met, 
but those circles were overlapping and they were they were close to each other. Mm. Let's talk a little bit real quick before we move past um, some of the instruments on this album, which are mm. uh, they, they're varied: Madagascar harp, uh, Spanish guitar, thumb piano, which uh, we mm-hmm. talked about when we were talking about Earth, Wind, and Fire. Was, it, that, was that did that come up with the Earth, we Wind, talked and Fire? about the kalimba thumb piano on the Earth, Wind, and Fire episode with uh, mm-hmm. Rafael Sadiq, which by the time people hear this, I'm not sure if it will be in the future or in the past. But also when I taped with uh, Thess One about Illmatic, we also talked about the kalimba because it shows up on one love oh and so we're in the midst of a kalimba renaissance here (laughs) on heat rocks shout out to thumb pianos (laughs) but this one is extra special because on the record nadi kamar he released a bunch of records on folkways Mm. and he's actually playing the mama lakimbi which is an instrument he designed named after a grouping of thumb pianos but not played with thumbs played with the fingers Ah, so it's not a kalimba it's not a kalimba but it's his variation of it Mm. just like uh of Kalan Fulcran made the Frankie phone. There's been various kind of incarnations of it, but he was a heavy player. He played the Madagascar harp, the Guinea yeah. Kuna, and the Talvija. I can't tell you what the Talvija, the Guinea Kuna, or the Madagascar harp are exactly, but if you hear the album, you're going to be brought <laughs> into spirals of sure. something special. Sure. Well, we will be back with more of our conversation with Frosty McNeil from Dev Lab about Nita Simone's 1974 album, It Is Finished. But first, here is some words from our Max Fun sibling podcast, Keep It Locked. Hi, everybody. My name is Justin McElroy. I'm Sydney McElroy. We're both doctors. and Nope, just me. Okay, well, Sydney's a doctor and I'm a medical enthusiast and we create... Okay. Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. Every week I dig through the annals of medical history to bring you the wildest, grossest, sometimes dumbest tales of ways we've tried to treat people throughout history. Now lately we do a lot of modern fake medicine because everything's a disaster, but it's slightly less of a disaster every Friday right here on MaximumFun.org as we bring you Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. And remember, don't drill a hole in your head. Listen, we already know that you love genre movies, film craft, and female filmmakers. So, if you love all those things, then by transitive property, you love my podcast, Switchblade Sisters. Hi, I'm film critic April Wolf. Every week, I have a conversation with a different female filmmaker about their favorite genre film. Each episode covers the filmmaking process, working in the film industry, and just like general geeking out about awesome movies. I've had such great guests like the big sick writer Emily Gordon. To me, indie movies as of late have come to be a catch-all term for a movie that kind of defies genre. Billy Madison and Half-Baked director Tamara Davis. When a comedian comes and enters onto my set, they're they're just there to be funny and we're all ready and waiting for them to be funny. Horror industry veteran and actor Barbara Crampton. That's where real drama lies for me. What's What's between you and I speaking right now? Where where are we meeting? And what's the energy that we create between us? And so many others. So check out Switchblade Sisters every Thursday on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back on Heat Rocks talking the 1974 live album from Nina Simone. It is finished with Frosty McNeil. Frosty, before we get back to the album, if I can just ask you about your your background with Dub Lab, which is turning twenty, which is extraordinary. So, number one, shouts out to that. You are you have been an internet radio station this whole time, and you are now uh, have been for the last about year or two been swimming into the world of actual terrestrial radio. Mm-hmm. 
you know, we are in an age of internet stations, of podcasts, et cetera, et cetera. What does it even mean for you to be making radio in 2019? Like, what is, what is, the, what is your concept of radio? What does that mean for you? It's always this kind of purity of sharing music. Mm. And it's, you know, if you're at a typewriter and writing a letter or you're typing on your laptop or on your cell phone, it's just form of communication. Radio itself, I'm, I'm fascinated by the fluidity of the form mm. because it, it can take on many different shapes. Right. I come up in a world, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I was taping AM gold radio and, and you know, <laughs> loving this kind of thing. So I've been fascinated with this idea of transmission of, of information, but really for me, radio is transmission of culture mm. and connecting people to culture. I think that food and music are those kind of nodes to, you know, the main lines into understanding a culture. So I've loved this idea of opening kind of doorways and pathways to people to discover music and just being giving and sharing, but also making it a community thing for conversation, you know, and bringing people together who are so excited and are brought together under the common kind of banner of ego-free sharing of information and sound. And so that's what keeps driving me. And the actual kind of medium itself is changing. It's evolving um, but really the, the message, you know, mm-hmm. and the, the, the core passion of it is the same. What is the fire track off, off this LP? <laughs> I feel like there's only really one right answer. You're I mean. asking yeah. tough questions out here. Is it, is it, is it tough though? I mean, <laughs> it's not, it's not, it's not tough. It's not tough. Yeah. No. It's, tough. Um, it's tough for me. I, I gotta keep it real. It, interesting. Okay. I mean. So fire can take many different forms. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I think I know what you're saying, right, Oliver, but um, should I say, should we all say it? <laughs> well, Frosty, what is your fire track on well, this LP? let me just tell you that this is a confession related to my fire track. It's good for the soul. Confession's good for the soul. I only heard the, to, 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 you know, to my knowledge, the original of this driving over here. I said, I better listen to the original. And I only never sought out the original because this version is so perfect and it's funkier than a mosquito's tweeter. Yeah. Why do I need the original? Why do I need any other version? This is Nina, you know? And she is, I mean, this is pure, pure fire. But the Ike and Tina Turner version, it's cool. It's not bad. I love them. Yeah. (laughs) They're amazing. Half of them, but yeah, sure. Half of them, yeah. One of the... But it it doesn't sound eternal and infinite, no. you know, mm. and hers is right. in mm. that zone. It's that thing that never, never gets old. Let's listen to the Ike and Tina Turner original, first of all. Because I'm around and I see what you do. You know you To your point, Frosty, I mean, Tina is doing the Tina thing. It's cool. If if I never heard the Nina Simone song, I would have thought this was like a pretty good sleeper jam off of whatever album this, yeah. you know, this, this Ike and Tina Turner song would have come off of. Yeah. But then let's come back to what Nina does with this. Rusty, can't believe nothing you say, cause I'm around and I see what you do, you know, you're than a mosquito streeter, you got a mouth like a herd of bulls. And Frosty, I'd love to hear what it is that you hear in her version that's so striking to you. I mean, for me, 
it's the sparseness, it's the minimalism of the instrumentation, even though there's layers going on with that. Mm -hmm. It's the restraint that the song initially brings in terms of all it's giving you is just kind of this bed of percussion. And then, of course, her performance of it Mm -hmm. begins with that. I wouldn't call it quiet. I don't know if Nina Simone is is capable of quietness, but (laughs) it's much more restrained. And then as the song builds she just begins to let more and more of it out. And there, mm. I mean, there are a lot of reasons why this song is, is, is fire, but I think those are the things that every time I listen to it, I'm always struck by the evolution within the song itself. And it's a jam that, like the Ike and Tina Turner version, you could say, okay, well, this is, you know, 19, you know, 68 or whatever. This is a tune that is more eternal. Like it could be blasted off in a, yeah. you know, satellite and somebody's going to discover it and probably understand a lot more about humankind than uh, anything else. It's funny because in prepping for this, I tried to look up as much as I could about the making of this album and what was happening for her around the time of the 1973 live recording. Yeah. It never occurred to me to actually figure out, so who put her up on this Ike and Tina Turner song from probably, I'm guessing, either 1970 or 71, because this is one of the songs that was recorded by R.C. Victor back in 71. Like of all of the Ike and Tina Turner songs you could take on, like why this one? Was that her choice? Was that someone at RCA Victor, like, serving sure. it up A&R style? Like, I, yeah, I, it didn't, it just never occurred to me to look it up because I just forget that it's a cover. Mm-hmm. It, because, to, again, to Frosty's point, it is so much her own. You don't really need to know about the original. But I'm sure there is mm-hmm. some kind of story behind, like, why this song of all of them? I mean, if you flip the words at this time, too, and you think about, I mean, one, you mentioned we like half of this combo. Tina Turner, right? And, I mean, yeah. and Ike. Ike, yeah, Ike, for all of his personal failings, as a musical, you know, visionary or just talent, you can't deny like what Ike did. He deserves a lot of musical credit. The problem is, is that everything else about him as a person pretty much erased, I think, what he accomplished as a musician, as a band leader, and all these things. And she had a person like that in her life too. Her yeah. husband and right. manager, Andy Stroud. So I don't know too. I mean, she also, mm. you know, I wouldn't be surprised if she was friends with, Tina, you know, she's in similar circles and she might've, you know, understood what she was going through and chosen that. But I urge people to also think about the song. This is a woman who's about to flee the United Snakes of America for Liberia. So if you think about the lyrics for the song and you think about her singing about the Mm. United States, you're nothing but a dirty, dirty old man. You do your thinking with a one-track mind. Keep talking about heaven and glory, but on your face is a different story. Clean up your rap. Your story's getting dusty. Wash out your mouth. Your lies are getting rusty. Do-do-do. Nixon. She's talking about Nixon. Yep. I mean, this is, it's... it's kind of hard to, yeah, yeah. That's, that's compelling. That's a, I, I like that take. I'm with that. And the percussive elements of this song sort of made me, it makes the song sound like a chant. Yeah. It makes it sound like she's calling up spirits. She's mm. conjuring up spirits. Yeah. I got to say, I I like Tina Turner's version. Okay. I like the funkiness mm. of it. Yeah. A lot. Okay. Um, but I can appreciate this version. Mm-hmm. If I had to choose, if I could only listen to one for the rest of my life. You, you'd go with Ike and Tina Turner's? I got to keep it real. What? I, ca- I commend this. I mean, I think that this is also the beauty of music. 
is yeah. that different strokes for different folks. And, you know, it's even different strokes of the same canvas, you know? Yeah. I think that for me, it, it just, it sounded, and again, I also love that version too, sure. <laughs> as I heard it an hour ago for the first time. <laughs> but, but I love it in a way that, you know, I, I might, you know, order a burrito at my favorite burrito <laughs> shop and be like, I know what it's going to taste like. And I nov- love it nonetheless for that. But for me with, with Nina in general, she's, she's kind of vaulting things into different time and space and something that, that is, it's her, but it's not her. I mean, I think cover songs already from the start, it's not her. She didn't write the words, but she's, inviting us into this space and to kind of live in this world of music and 45 years later to be sitting here talking about her music is pretty pretty incredible amazing so morgan what was your fire Mm. truck because i'm assuming it wasn't this one then it wasn't this one yeah and i went back and forth i went Mm -hmm. back and forth um and it was tough it went between i want a little sugar in my bowl Mm. Mm mm-hmm and let it be me. Mm-hmm. And why let it be me? One, um, just from for, for this album is because of the intimacy of it, mm-hmm. and because compared to the other versions of Let It Be Me I've heard, this was so sexy. reference point that I had for this and the version that I kept hearing a lot was Elvis Presley. It almost sounds like a German Schlager song or something. I feel like people... It's got a real Pat Boone vibe. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that her brother's on that tune as well and then you start to think you know bringing it further back you know to you know did they sing together in church you know were they what was that that kind of relationship um Mm -hmm. yeah it's i love also that you picked that song (laughs) that was yeah that's some left field stuff i would not have imagined that i I just it just was so pretty to Mm -hmm. me well your other choice was her version her live version here of i want a little sugar in my bowl which Mm -hmm. i think is an amazing song right one that she certainly Mm -hmm. even though it's a bessie smith original it's something i think a lot of people really associate with nina and i believe this song is what produces your favorite moment on the album absolutely my favorite moment is when nina just is like listen in case you weren't aware i play the piano (laughs) Uh (laughs) so well and she just goes in on it at the 132 mark Bessie Smith, you know. Can we actually keep going just moments after that happens? Oh, sure. Because oh, yeah, this is connected to my favorite moment. Okay, great. Yeah. This next moment is actually magic to me.
I knew that would get you. So this whole stretch from from the the moment I mean the beautiful piano playing yeah. she gives that nod to Bessie Smith which by the way is not happening on the album cover unfortunately so she's not credited mm. but it's this Bessie Smith tune but then she in the live setting I know that would get you and this is one of those things where you're filling in with your imagination because this is a live performance we have no idea what happened yeah. the audience is laughing She's obviously doing something emotive from stage, whether just a gesture or something. And I, I typically, I'm not a huge, huge live album fan, which is kind of strange that I picked this record. But I feel like there are certain moments in kind of live recordings that, you know, it's the, the unreplicable moment. And that little moment, I love the fact there's no explanation for it. She's playing so incredibly there's this connection with the audience. You're hearing the audience, but then you don't know what happened. And I think it's this humorous kind of strange mystery, but also tied with something so gentle and, yeah. and, and beautiful um, together. I, this is actually, you know, my favorite moment on the record as well. Mm-hmm. See, we're right here. Right. We're right here. If you had to describe it as finished in three words, what three words would you choose? Um, I would say vexations, mm. duality, and wariness. Mm. You prep for this. I prep for this. <laughs> you, you Jeopardy prep- champ, champion. <laughs> <laughs> but Frosty. Pre- but prepped really, really well. The weight is too heavy. The weight is too heavy. Let's finish it. Well, that will do it for this episode of Heat Rocks with our special guest, Frosty McNeil. What are you working on now, and where can people find you online? Oh, I'm working on being a, a daddy. Yeah, congrats. <laughs> that's my, Number that's two. my, uh, yeah. my, main, my main job. <laughs> uh, but I'm, I'm working on, I think, exploring wide-spectrum sound. Mm. I think I'm, I'm trying to, to follow those outer edges of music, and I'm trying to constantly just kind of pivot pivot my perspective on sound I'm saying sound as opposed to just music but but that purity of this sonic form mm-hmm. and in turn hope that I can help pivot other people and to kind of widen the scope you know uh, for how people experience sound and, yeah. and realize that it is it's a powerful essence that's here and uh, if we are open to it it can change us yeah. what can people find you? Uh, dublab.com is a good spot dublab.com um, or in a room late at night bouncing a baby <laughs> <laughs> don't, oh, don't, don't stalk Frosty though this <laughs> <laughs> means that metaphor help me out <laughs> congratulations on 20 thanks, years thanks. With, uh, with Dublab and thanks for all you've done yeah. for, for LA yeah. and beyond thanks for having me I really appreciate it our pleasure if you like this week's album, Nina Simone's It Is Finished, um, we have some recommendations for other stuff you might want to check out. Uh, I'll start, which is I would recommend Esther Phillips' 1971 album, Home Is Where the Hatred Is, Ooh. on Kudu, which is another album from a jazz artist turned quasi-soulster in the 1970s, especially when she started recording with with the, the, the Kudu label. Uh, Esther Phillips also has this incredibly distinctive voice and sad parallel, but also someone who dealt with a lot of her own demons in in the song Home is Where the Hatred is. And I I always forget whether or not she's covering Gil Scott Heron 
or if Gil Scott was covering her. But either way, these are both two people who were dealing with a lot of problems with addiction, which is what the song is about. Um, and so this this song just has many, many layers to it besides the fact that it's just a kind of a, a great jam um, in the same way that we were talking about uh, Funkier Than Mosquitoes Tweeter uh, was earlier, something that uh, you know a lot of uh, DJs have, have spun out over the years. But the whole album is great, and her body of work on Kudu was fantastic. So again, if you, if you liked the Nina Simone album, I, I do recommend people check out this Esther Phillips. Home is where the hatred is. Home was once an empty vacuum. That's filled now with my silent screams Home is where the needle marks My recommendation would be, since we were talking about Sam Wayman, to check out the Ganja and Hess soundtrack. Mm. It is a hodgepodge of electronica, of soul, of gospel. It's a lot of things like this live album. Mm. And it's her brother, so check for it. And to bring Frosty back, we're going to have him give his recommendation, Frosty. So because this album, Nina's Moons, It Is Finished, was really a gateway for me into Exuma's world, mm-hmm. I would recommend checking out his 1970 album, the Exuma kind of debut album. And I think that in the wake of Dr. John's passing, yeah. mm. Dr. John was deep, incredible. But this is like a step deeper. This is, mm. I well... I shouldn't say that. I'm gonna be, people are going to uh, uh, come come after me. I love Dr. John. Yeah. But I think that Dr. John, it's almost the, the, the carnival masquerade at points. And he does it well. It's incredible. When you're listening to Exuma's album, there's actual real spells happening. Mm. And I think that when you're diving into the, the Caribbean kind of uh, Afro-Caribbean kind of spirituality and stuff, to me, that record is, is raw and, and powerful. And uh, I would just start right at the beginning. His version, Obey Man, would be a great place to start. You've been listening to Heat Rocks with me, Oliver Wong, and Morgan Rhodes. Our theme music is Crown Ones by Thess One of People Under the Stairs. Shout out to Thess for the hookup. Heat Rocks is produced by myself and Morgan, alongside Christian Duenas, who also edits, engineers, and does the booking for our shows. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher, and our executive producer is Jesse Thorne. We are part of the Max Fun family, taping every week live in their studios in the West Lake neighborhood of L.A., which I think is oftentimes described as funkier than a mosquito's tweeter. <laughs> We are bereft right now of our iTunes reviewers. And we don't say this just to put a guilt trip on our wonderful listeners, but as we try to build this podcast, headed towards year two, the way in which people find us oftentimes is going to be through iTunes. And if you can leave us a five-star review there, that's how we build our base. So again, please just take a minute out, leave us a review, and we might read part of it on the air. So we also want to shout out our media fans and family, including the following. We want to shout out Milton Doryland. Shout out to Milton for keeping us uh, in his group of favorite podcasts. Want to shout out Jimish Meta. Um, Jimmy Schmetta would like us to get into Donny Hathaway and by all means if someone wants to talk about Donny Hathaway 
um, and you're a fan of this show, please let us know. Let us know which album you'd like us to talk about. We also want to shout out um, Jenna the Chowder Man. <laughs> shout out to Je- shout out Jenna. We want to shout out McDarren Pascal. Thank you, McDarren Pascal said, Hateration in this dancery. Shout out to Mary J. Blige there. Want to shout out two dope boys. Um, Twitter handle is Y'all Don't Hear Me. Want to shout out Jay Boogie. Mm. Want to shout out Karen Tonkson that gave us a shout out as she shouted out her episode about Karen Carpenter. Want to shout out Ella Feel, um, RD, uh, Wax Poetics, uh, Joseph Choleric. Thank you so much, Joseph. Tiffany. Uh, I want to shout out Florian Echeverry. Shout out. Um, the review is in French, but I, I assume that it's props. So thank you, Florian. Let's hope so. Um, <laughs> I want to shout out Brittany Humphrey, the expert, Bedroom Beethoven's. Our followers have the best names out. out there. As always, want to shout out Chris Malanfi, Chase Gibson. want to shout out Jason Woodbury, who shouted us out, PJ Rodriguez, and Brent Serrata. We do so appreciate the tweezies and the retweezies. I also want a special shout out and thank you to the folks who do the Who Cares About the Rock Hall podcast who just had me on to talk about, to ask me to make a case for De La Soul's inclusion in the Rock Hall, uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which has not happened yet, which I just think is a general travesty of justice, but frankly, I'm not all that surprised just knowing what I know about rock institutions. But anyways, it was a really, really fun episode to tape uh, with Joe and Kristen, so thank you for having me in on that. Again, that's the Who Cares About the Rock Hall podcast, where you can find me waxing poetic about De La Soul. Nice to see you again, Oliver. Good to see you too, Morgan. And one last thing. Here is a teaser for next week's episode. Long awaited. We've been trying to get this man in our studio since we launched the show. It is Raphael Sadiq, R&B legend, talking about the legendary R&B album by Earth, Wind & Fire, That's the Way of the World. How is it that these Bay Area kids are reacting to that to Earth, Wind, and Fire in this constellation of other groups that are like literally rooted in Oakland as well? Yeah, I'm quite sure the reasons are are similar similarities in groups. Um, I, I I was so fortunate to work with um, Maurice White while mm-hmm. he was here with us yeah. um, on a record called Show Me. One of those nights, me and Maurice hung out till four in the morning. This is bigger than in a dream. He's sitting in my studio in North Hollywood. So I just took it upon myself to say, you know what, I'm just going to try something. I just put on his records. Every song, I just wanted to hear what he said when I stopped him. He said, well, honestly, man, I was just, you know, trying to be like the boys from up around your way. Mm-hmm. I'm like, who is that? He said, Slide the Family Stone. Mm-hmm. And then you could hear it in the, ow, ow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> ow, 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 ow. A slide, right? And I was sitting there like, "Wow!" And he said, "You know, that's I was really that's who we were trying to be, like Slide and Family Stone, very international, very right. pop, right. very popular. Not pop, what pop means today, but yeah, yeah. sure, just popular records like Hot Fun in the Summertime, MaximumFun.org, comedy and culture, artist owned, audience supported.